At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at KeelyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. We've got a treat today, not only for the moms in the house, come back to that one in a moment, but for any human being that is looking to feel truly empowered and inspired to do more with their lives. Let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. She's on a mission to help women feel empowered in all their relationships so that they can feel whole and deeply connected with those that they love. Dr. Morgan Cutlett is a psychotherapist and a relationship expert and has helped more than 100,000 moms regain their sanity and prevent burnout. In other words, to live inspired. That's what she helps the mamas do, but that's also what she helps us do as we listen to her story and her ideas as we tune into this episode. Because today, Morgan shares her wisdom around how to prioritize your life the myth around permanent resting state of balance does not exist. The importance of focusing on the good instead of the ways that we fall short and so much more. I truly enjoyed the conversation that I had with this leader and I know you are too. So my friends, buckle up, get ready for the ride. Whether you are a parent, a caregiver, or love someone who is, this conversation will remind you and each of us of the ability in your life to focus on the most important, to let go of the things that are less important, and to continually take your next right step forward. So my friends, without further ado, let me introduce you to my friend, and now she will be yours. Her name is Dr. Morgan Cutlip. Morgan, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here. Well, I feel like I'm already on with a friend after our preamble. We, You and I have been talking for four hours, I think, already, and I have a new <laughs> friend in California. I've read your book. I've read your works online. I feel like I know you as a, a friend already, but for those who don't, if you bumped into someone randomly in a grocery store mm -hmm. and they said, hmm, Dr. Morgan Cutler, that, that sounds familiar. What do you do? How would you respond to that? Oh, I, I never know how to respond to that. That's the thing, because I feel like I do a lot of different things. So I would say I have my doctorate in psychology, and I create educational resources to help people in their relationships. And I guess now I get to say that I'm an author. So I would I would toss that into the mix as well. <laughs> and then if I was to meet you at a speech, I would say, don't tell me what you do professionally, because that, that <laughs> might bore me back to sleep. When you're not working, what do you like to do? And how would you answer that? 
But I like to play baseball with my son and I like to listen to my daughter's stories about her hilarious fifth grade class. And I like to watch comedians. That is one of my most favorite things to do and just hang out with my husband in our backyard and work on a project around the home. We are like the ultimate couple at accomplishing projects together. So these are the things I like to do in my spare time. I feel like it's important to know about me that uh, I live in California, but I'm from Ohio. It's like part of who I am through and yeah. through is that I'm from the Midwest. Um, and I'm proud of it. I feel like it gives you a little bit of hardiness that my kids are not getting in California. They're cold when it's like 55 degrees out. That's something that's important to me as well. I married my high school sweetheart. Maybe that's a little more interesting too. We reconnected after many years apart on MySpace. Mm, that <laughs> that dates me. Totally. So this is going to really divide a wedge through the middle when I ask you this question, but who's the comedian? If you and your husband have to go on a date night and you get to see one comedian live, who's it going to be? We would choose Jim Gaffigan. Awesome. So Do you we. know him? Oh, Lord, yes. And, and he's a riot. He's so a- funny. And he's, for the most part, pretty clean. So we introduced him to our daughter. Our kids are so so funny. Like their intelligence around humor is really high. So I introduced him to our kids and it's like, oh, my daughter wants to watch our Jim Gaffigan videos. That are our engineering videos. So it's pretty cool. Uh, listen, we, we could go all day long on comedy and Gaffigan <laughs> and French fries and everything else he talks about. But let, let's talk about you and your life. You mentioned yeah. California mm-hmm. and I'm not cold when it's 50 because I grew up in Ohio. So I want, I want to spend a little bit of time where I live in the Midwest, now yeah. with you back here. Talk first about your mom. I, th- I think so much of what we become mm-hmm. in life is because of our parents mm-hmm. and the way they treated us, sometimes because we want to be just like them. And other times we want to be uh, the exact opposite of what we received. Mm-hmm. Your mother had a difficult childhood. So talk about your mom first. Yeah, my mom was adopted. She was adopted from birth. And it's funny this year, she actually reconnected with her birth mother. So we've learned some new things, but she was adopted at birth and then was brought up by a family, a husband, wife. They're actually, he was a Baptist pastor and her adopted mom was just one of those people who, um, we're doing stereotypes. Let's say she's from Connecticut, right? So like a little cold, a little stoic is the stereotypes there. And she fit the stereotypes. And um, she was sort of one of those people who was kind of like a gift to the community, always welcoming people in, caretaking for everyone else. But she didn't do a lot of caretaking of my mom in the home. For an example, my mom was a runner. She ran track and cross country in Pennsylvania, and they were state champions in cross country. Her coach was a really important influence in her life. And my grandmother never once saw my mom race all these years, just distant, uninvolved. The way that I tell the story in my book, and I've talked about it in interviews, is that my mom's pain growing up, she would describe as very lonely, very much kind of just navigated her way through things. But her pain was my sister's and my gain. So she sort of went into motherhood being like, I'm going to be full on super mom. (laughs) And she was president of the board of education, which is an elected position. Like it's a big deal to to do that. She was all in. She was always a room mom. She was always volunteering on all the field trips. She coached our teams. I played softball. She coached that soccer, all the things. And 
she was incredible. Obviously there are other sides to our parents, right? So, you know, there's other pieces and parts to her, but this part really influenced me when I went into to parenthood mm. because I had different life circumstances. I had a different experience being mothered. And so when I became a mom, I could not for a long time figure out why I felt like I was doing all of the things I was thought I was prioritizing in a way that felt good. I felt like I was really being doing my best to be a good mom, but I couldn't figure out why I always felt like I was falling short. And in many ways, it's because I took my experience with my mom and that template and I just transposed it on me. And I was like, mm. I cannot live up to this, <laughs> not live up to this level of mothering. I work part-time. My husband travels. Like my life looked so different than my mom's. So you had that one example of what parenting looks like. And then on the other side of the ledger, you had a different version, a fellow named Dr. John Van Epp. <laughs> is that right? Who, who yes. in the world is Dr. John Van Epp? <laughs> That's my dad. Gosh, my dad is a pretty amazing guy. And I'm, I've been really blessed in terms of my parents. So he has his doctorate in psychology and he was actually a pastor and then went back to school when I was growing up to get his doctorate in psychology and like some masters along the way and did a private practice and eventually started writing courses to help people in their relationships. And so when he was going back to school, I think I was six or seven at the time, but he would take me to class with him in his doctoral classes. I cannot imagine bringing our son with me, although he maybe would do all right. But I would pack like a fake briefcase. I'd put candy and paper and I'd sit there and take notes and just hang out with my dad. We would play this game anytime we would have long car rides together where he would give me a hypothetical case. And he'd say, okay, this is the family. What do you do to help the mom? What do you say to the son? What do you think the son's going through? How would you talk to the dad? And it was one of my most favorite things to do with him. It's a cherished memory that, and I, I couldn't get enough of it. And so I feel like I started working with him then, <laughs> it feels like. But then when he started taking his courses and teaching them around the country, I'd go with them. And sometimes I'd teach with them. And sometimes I'd work the money, the booth <laughs> and do the things that are fun for kids to do, but I sort of grew up, I feel like in the profession of relationship education and psychology alongside my dad. What did you realize as much as you'd like carrying a fake briefcase and <laughs> counting your dad's money at his book sale table, that maybe one day you could serve patients, you could serve yeah. clients, you could work the book table with your name on the bottom of a book. When did you realize it wasn't his dream that you were living, but ultimately it could become yours? Well, I think there's a process that unfolded over time. I mean, in second grade, I wanted to be a psychologist in space. So I feel like I was like sort of into it at that point in time, but then it evolved over, over time. So he started his work with singles, actually, like really had this vision of empowering singles, how to choose healthy partners. And I still feel like his work there is such a gift that I feel like more people need because dude, I was just thinking oof. we need to get him on the podcast. You should talk to him. Podcast that story loudly. How do you get singles to recognize who really is intended to be their partner in life? And how to use discernment. And he gives a plan and it's just such good work. So you should have him on. So he started with singles, evolved then to couples and families and things like that. But I have this vivid memory of being probably a freshman or sophomore in college and saying to him, all right, dad, you know, someday I'm going to do something to help women. And I don't know what that is, but I am. 
because you can't do that. Only I could do that. That's going to be my thing. And so I think from an early age, there was a desire in me to have something of my own, but I wasn't quite sure what that looked like. And it's been many, many years for me to figure that out. And also, I guess there's like a light and a dark to things, right? Like the light is just all this beautiful relationship I have with him and influence and what he's taught me over the years. And then the dark is I felt sometimes like I lived in a shadow. And so Mm. I had to figure out what my path looked like and develop some confidence in that area of life. I feel like I've I've put in some work there and that's been good for me and for the both of us. You go on from high school where you bump into a sweetheart who doesn't become your high school sweetheart quiet yet. You go on to university, you get your PhD in psychology? Yes. When, when did you and your high school sweetheart bump into each other again and then remain together? Oh man. Okay. So drama. I was back home. I was back in Ohio uh, working on my doctorate and he was in DC working for in business. And I ran into his mom at Walmart. (laughs) I was getting contacts and I ran into her and she told me how he had just recently broken off an engagement. And it's like, oh, okay. Why are you telling me all this? I don't need all the details of their life. You know, it would have been about five years since we had last spoke. And I had been dating somebody who I think was perhaps close to proposing as well, but I had reservations about that relationship. And so uh, my poor dad, I was like, if he asks permission, you tell him no. (laughs) I put it on him. I'm not doing it. So anyway, my husband's name is Chad. Uh, eventually, I think after his mom coming, reporting, reporting back on look who I ran into, he reached out to me on MySpace and it was around Christmas time. He ended up coming home and we went out to dinner and we chatted and I had broken up with him a number of times. And so he had told me later on that he was like, that's, I'm not going back into this. It was too hard to get broken up with that much. So I reached out to him and pursued him a bit. And the rest is history. We were married eight months later. And now we've been married over 15 years. So so yeah. 15 years, the man in DC comes home and gets married in Ohio. And then eventually yes. the two of them leave and head to the sunny coast of California. Yeah, many stops in between DC yeah. for a bit, Florida for a minute, and then California. And then you start raising kids. Yeah, I know we're we're speeding through this thing a little bit, but you have a little girl, then a little boy. Yeah, life gets complicated. It does. It really does. It's so wild. I I think that after kids, our relationships can really have this opportunity to deepen and to expand in these really meaningful ways. But a lot of us really go into parenthood without anticipating what's to come. And so a lot of the stuff that feels kind of fun and spontaneous before kids were like, ooh, a house renovation. This is fun. Or, oh, a relocation. How exciting. It's just spontaneous. You know, all these things sound really exciting and fun. And then after kids, you're like, this is so stressful. And so I, I think that we experienced what most people experience, which is that life after kids was beautiful and wonderful and everything we wanted. And it was also very challenging and hard and added complexity and layers to our relationship that made it harder for us to stay connected, Mm. harder for us to just care for each other in the ways that we might need just because logistically he was traveling more. And at least that's my story. And I think too, when you become parents, you're sort of thrust into these new roles that have always lived inside of you, 
but that never really have blossomed until you become parents. So it's sort of like hard to prepare for this massive shift that occurs. And so I was suddenly now seeing him. He's not just my husband. He's a dad. And I have all of these expectations. Um, clearly, I told you my story of my dad. I have all these expectations of what a good dad does. Um, and I'm sure he has all these expectations of what a mom is like. And so all of that stuff, I think, muddies the water after kids in, in ways that we don't anticipate. And so I, like many couples, we were wading through all of that as we welcomed kids into the world. Mm. Well, you, you said a lot there and uh, <laughs> we'll unpack a little bit of this sequentially. One was about the relationship and the drift. Mm -hmm. And anyone who's ever been in a relationship has also experienced drift in that relationship. I don't care how easy life is. It's hard to remain on fire for one another. Uh, there is a question that you lay out in the book, I think, where it was, what do you miss most about our relationship before we had children? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really cool question. T tell me why that's important to ask. It's important to ask because we forget who we were before kids sometimes. Like, I feel like most people can identify with the situation where like you have not been out together alone in a long time. And then you finally do. And you're like, oh gosh, I really like you. Like, I really have fun with you. And we sort of forget these things. And so uh, for some couples, they're really good about getting that regular time in. Other couples don't feel comfortable, you know, having a sitter or doing the things, or they just can't afford it. There's all sorts of variations on how much opportunity we have to connect in our relationships and in what ways. But I think this question can help transport us back to a time in our relationship where it was just the two of us and you get to sort of reminisce together. Right. And there's beauty in that and there's power in that. And remembering like, I remember on a date with my husband once, he's like, what was your favorite date we ever had before kids? And I was like, what a good question. He's not a big talker. He's not a big talker. So when he pulls out a good question, I never forget it. It's like, that is one of my most favorite questions you've asked me because then we got to relive the date together when we talked about it. And so this is a really wonderful way for couples to get back to that time and remember some of these great things. And I'll be using that question tonight at dinner. So thank you for giving me something <laughs> to welcome. talk with my wife about tonight. So there you go, Beth. We'll be having a real conversation tonight, <laughs> but we'll also be doing that real conversation with four kids at the table yeah. and a dog and- yeah three of, of our surviving parents and the complexity of work oh and gosh. life and everything else. So it's going to go back now to a quote that I wrote down word for word from your book. When we throw ourselves fully into our kids, mm -hmm. we burn out, we develop resentment and we feel disappointment with life. Then you go on to say, when we put ourselves at the forefront of our lives, we also feel terrible with things like shame and guilt. And we worry that we are missing out on those special moments with our kids, finding a balance of priorities feels futile. And the thing is finding that balance of priorities is what everybody's striving to do. Can you get balance? And yeah. then you challenge us with not only the pain points, but the fact that balance is futile. So unpack that quote and then give us a little bit of a resolution forward then. So you're pulling in different parts of the book, which I like that because I think that over time, the book starts to kind of like, it all starts to integrate. So in the beginning, I start with an intro. I try to trick people and I just make it look like a chapter. So they read it, but it's called Balance is Baloney. And I feel like we really do need to start here because we are really existing in a society that leads us to believe that we can find this sort of permanent resting state of balance, you know, 
the millennial generation, when you look at research, we are the most obsessed with self-improvement, self-care. We're trying to find like the, the right, turn the right dials. So finally we've, we reach balance and then we can just exist forever in this yeah. balanced state. And that's what we're after. I think so many of us, if we really admit it. We're like, yeah, I'm just trying to figure that out, whether it's your weight or your relationships or your job or your work-life balance, all these things, we're trying to find it. And I want people to know right away that that's a complete myth. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I want people to know that is because number one, let's just take it off our plates. There's a whole lot of energy that we exert into trying to find balance. So if we can like take that off the, off the table, then we can free up a little bit of energy for other things. Um, the other thing is that when we do reach balance, because we'll reach it temporarily, that's my point is that we'll find it temporarily. When you do reach it and then you fall out of balance, we then feel ashamed. We're like, I'm doing all the things. What's the matter with me? And so then we judge ourselves. We feel bad. We go back to the drawing board. I got to research this some more, find it. I'm going to, I'm going to hack this. And so I want to normalize for people that yes, you might find balance for a moment. You might find that cruising altitude, but the next round of turbulence is right ahead. And so yeah. prepare for that, expect it. So you're not shocked when it comes. And what we really, what I put forward in the book is that we don't really need to be after balance. We need to learn how to be really good at balancing. It's a practice. This is what's most sustainable. You know, when you're driving down the road and you're trying to drive in a straight line, you don't hold the wheel totally still in this balanced position. Instead, you're making all these tiny little micro adjustments. And as you make these little mini adjustments, you drive straight. It's the same thing. We have to continually make these little tweaks. The quote you, you mentioned was about prioritizing. And so what I try to pull out in that chapter is that at any given point in time, our priorities are regularly in conflict with each other. And this is normal. This is part of it. When I'm, I think I use this example in a different interview. When I'm sitting here interviewing with you. I'm not doing other things. You cannot prioritize all of the same things at the same time. And that can feel really painful. But what becomes empowering is that we're in charge of how we arrange our priorities. And so learning how to regularly tune in check on how we're arranging them and then know that we have the agency to shift them around mm -hmm. becomes a very empowered stance with how we move through life. And I think the goal, I mean, if you had to boil it down with priorities is, are you prioritizing your life in a way that you can feel at peace with? And sometimes it's a little painful, but overall, big picture, do you feel pretty at peace with how you're managing the priorities of your life? So I'm going to go a little bit deeper into that when you're cleaning up Cheerios and trying to find the <laughs> cell phone charger and wondering where in the world you put your keys and oh my God, dog, why, we, put, someone put the dog outside. It's, like, it's, it's always the dog. Like, so how do you even find time to make that list of priorities? It, mm. it, your hair is on fire when you're going <laughs> through life as a young parent. And I want to make sure we're totally inclusive here. When you're going through life as an older parent or as a committed yeah. aunt. Or is that human being who's a care partner for a loved one who um, has dementia or some other struggle that they're dealing with for the rest of their life? You got a million things going on right now. And now you've got a leader on this podcast saying, and you've got to prioritize. <laughs> I, I'm not like prescriptive. So if people listen and are like, oh, 
come on, lady, just tell me exactly what to do. I'm not totally prescriptive. So I think we have a responsibility to know ourselves a bit, to have some insight so that we can do the things. We can meet our needs in the ways that actually move the needle. We can prioritize and what's important to us because what's important to me isn't what's important to you. So I'm just disclaimer for the listeners. I think part of the, the process of how we prioritize isn't necessarily that we need to make a list. Maybe at some point you do. Okay. Maybe. But when you're in the hair on fire moment, if you can carve out a second or two to just reflect on what's mm. going on in that moment, it's very clear that there are competing priorities. In this moment, I have a baby screaming and I have a phone charger that I desperately need because I got to call my mom back because she's called me six times and my battery's about to die, right? We have two competing priorities. If you can take a moment and pause and think about what's what am I going to feel at peace with in this moment and how I arrange these priorities, then you can choose your action in a way that feels okay. I'm going to grab the baby. I'm going to suit the baby. and then Or maybe that looks different. Maybe it's like, no, my mom is much scarier than this crime baby. I'm going to go get the phone charger. So I think some of these things we overcomplicate. There's deep work to be done. There, there really is around these issues. But sometimes when it's a hair on fire moment, it's just a matter of creating a second to pause, to reflect and check in with yourself and make these choices mindfully. We exist so often at such a fast momentum of life that we are really disassociated from ourselves. Mm. We are like numbed out moving through the day, not even thinking about how we're doing or what we're doing. We're just like, I, the visual in my head is always the Tasmanian devil, which also probably dates me, but that cartoon of just like whirling around the house. So I realize it sounds a little cliche, but sometimes it really is just taking that moment to gather yourself and think, okay, in this moment, here's what I'm up against. Which one am I going to choose? Awesome. So on Saturday, I had a conversation with a dear friend who is a busy, busy, busy mom. And near the end of it, she explained almost through tears in her eyes that uh, she's just striving to be a perfect mom. Yeah. And I had not yet read your book. I read that Sunday and it took me until Tuesday to finish it. Beautiful book. But I had not yet read this line that I'm about to quote back to you. Because if I had, I would have quoted it to my dear friend. But you said, good enough is better than perfect. Mm -hmm. So this, this beautiful young mom is trying her, her best to be perfect. And then you reminded me and now you remind her that good enough is better than perfect. Tell me why. Yes. So this is in a section of the book where I talk about three reasons why motherhood feels really, really hard. And it probably applies to all parents, but I talk about it through the lens of motherhood. And this is under the category of intensive mothering, which is this hypervigilance. It's a whole research body of research on this topic, and it's really interesting. But it's this hypervigilance that we bring into parenting to really, gosh, I mean, it is to really try to get it perfectly. It's really this heightened awareness our generation has brought into parenting of almost like the fragility of the human spirit. It's like we recognize some of the things that we took from our experience growing up. And even if we had good parents and we're like, oh, that really impacted me. I don't want to do that to my kids. And we're so easily messed up. It's so easy to inflict this micro trauma. And so we're really just trying to get it 
Right. And I think what this does to the parenting experience is it sort of perpetuates a sort of like walking on eggshells experience, this almost uptightness to it of like, oof, I got to say this the right way, parent this perfectly, do all the right things. And it creates a lot of stress and anxiety for parents. And I think this is one of the main factors as to why parenting feels very difficult these days. Like there's a lot of heavy lifting because there is when you're trying to do all this emotional intelligence type of work. Um, But the reason why good enough is better than perfect is because when we make mistakes in front of our kids, we have the opportunity to repair, to teach them how to fix their mistakes, how to work through an issue that we have our own humanness too, that we are not these idols for them to see as perfect. And then now they have these expectations of themselves up to that they need to be perfect. So we're modeling that it's okay to make mistakes. The other reason is that kids need a little bit of freedom and space. Like kids need to have a little bit of an opportunity to figure things out. The good enough parenting is D.W. Winnicott. So historically, he came up with that term, good enough parenting. And the idea behind it was, is that when our kids are really little, we have to meet all of their needs because they won't survive if we don't. But then progressively, we start to kind of back off and come more alongside so that they have the opportunity to struggle a little bit, know that they have a safe landing spot, but figure things out on their own, which builds resiliency and a sense of agency. And they're going to be existing in this difficult, sometimes painful, imperfect world. And so it's our job to come alongside them and prepare them for that existence. And so this is why good enough is really better than perfect. Mm. When I was growing up and and generations before me, (laughs) it was almost like if if he touches the stovetop, he won't touch it again. Yeah. It's almost like parents were so cavalier in kind of a beautiful way. Like you just kind of let kids, when you hear the dinner bell, come home. But until then, don't come home. I better not see your face until you hear the dinner bell. But it was done in love. And now it's become so bubble wrapped and so protective and snowplow-ish. So I'm I'm curious, uh, what is the effect then on our children? I know much of your work Mm -hmm. is about the parents themselves Mm -hmm. and how to make sure we write them, the mom, the dad, and make sure our life is better. But tell the moms and the dads and the, and the caregivers out there who are just so focused on being perfect for the other one, the reason why maybe you should not only for your, not only for your own health and well-being, but also for theirs. With our generation, so these little kids, like the my dot kids are uh, 10 and 7, you know, to be determined some of these outcomes. But what we have seen in some of the older generations of kids coming out is that they're lacking in some resilience and hardiness. There's higher rates of anxiety and things like that, which part of it is this like lack of um, of grit. It's kind of lacking a little bit of grit and hardiness. I worked in a college counseling center for many years and I, it, words, I don't have words powerful enough to articulate the severity of issues that we saw coming through there. And um, I think part of it was like a lack of 
self-confidence in how to navigate the real world, how to deal with some of these hard things and this anxiety and unsureness of themselves. And so we saw a lot of pathology and the research supports that as well. And I get so hesitant to speak to some of these things because then I feel like it just ups the anxiety around having to do this well. Like, oh my gosh, now I have to perfect, I have to parent unperfect, imperfectly perfect, right? Like I don't want to, I don't want to facilitate that experience for, for parents out there. But I guess know that it's okay for there to be hard experiences in our kids' lives that they overcome. That's part of how we grow stronger, how we grow more sure of ourselves. I mean, if we think back on our own lives, the moments that we did something that was manageably difficult and we succeeded, those are probably some of our proudest moments, Moments. right? And so let's give our kids the opportunity to have more moments like that. Mm. Well, let's give ourselves the opportunity for those types of moments too. And yes. I think one of the terms that you introduced me to, and maybe you're not the first, but I really liked it. This idea of mommying yourself or yeah. dadding yourself. What does it mean to mom yourself? Yeah. So I think that's my term. I, I don't know. I think it's my term. I have sweatshirts that say, go mom yourself. So I have claimed it. Um but it's really the takeaway of my book is that, um, I, so my book is specifically for moms, but I think this applies across the board. So that moms are really the master managers of the people and the things in life. And we just really aren't always that great at turning those same skill sets toward ourselves. And so in my book, I teach moms how to mother themselves like they mother their kids, because it's so easy for us to think about how we care for our relationships when we apply the examples to our kids. And then if I'm like, well, now do it for yourself or like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And so the book really walks moms through, here's what it looks like with your kids and here's what it looks like with yourself. And so the short version of mother yourself, like you mother your kids is to go mom yourself. And so I hope that moms keep that at like top of mind so that they can regularly check in. This is a takeaway too, to check in with themselves repeatedly through the day so they can make those little minor adjustments. So it feels like a more sustainable approach to feeling good in parenthood. Well, let me tell the dads in the room, hey, dads, go dad yourself. Yes. (laughs) All all the times we do everything for the little ones, for them. uh, It's important sometimes that we do some of those activities for ourselves too. So go dad yourself. You, You gave me about 26 different quotes that I wrote down. And if I ask <laughs> all of them right now, we will, we'll be in episode number six. Of <laughs> I don't, I don't want to put you through that kind of pain when you have two kids upstairs, <laughs> but let, let me ask you about a couple of the quotes that I just loved. I love this one. Having needs does not make you needy. <laughs> so t- tell so... our caregivers, our parents and our fellow human listeners what that means. Mm-hmm. Having needs does not make you needy. I do this so often talking about women, but I know that men have absorbed these messages too. So this this quote, you have to go back a little bit and you have to understand that we have absorbed messages from the moment we're born about what it means to have needs. What it And for the most part with women, one of the messages we receive is that it's important for us to self-sacrifice for the preservation of our relationships. And I think... I, 
I might not be in the majority in this. I, I think it's a beautiful aspect of women. Like, I love that part of me. I love that I'm a caregiver and all these things. So I hope women love that part of themselves. But also we need to acknowledge that motherhood kind of turns that into hyperdrive, turns up the dial. We're already sort of programmed to make our needs small. And then when we become moms, it's almost like it's your duty to almost become a martyr for motherhood. And what happens over time is that these needs become put on the back burner, they become really small, they become silenced, and we start to forget what we even need anymore. It's like every mom I talk to, one thing they always resonate with is getting a moment alone and being like, I don't even know what to do right now. I don't even know what's going to fill me up. It feels like it's a drop in the bucket. I'm so deprived. I don't even know. Part of what I want moms to hear in this book, but anybody, this applies to anybody, uh, is that it's human to have needs. Like we have to become in touch again with like this, it's a healthy sense of entitlement to have some needs in our relationships because when we don't express them over time, we become resentful and irritated and burned out and bitter toward the people we love the most, toward the people we sacrificed in the name of. And so it ends up hurting our relationships. And so I try to, I have a whole chapter and sections on needs and explaining what happens over time and how we can kind of develop this unhealthy relationship with our needs. But we have to come to a place where we feel okay about having them so we can get to a place where we are expressing them in our relationships. Well, I think it ties pretty directly into this next quote that says what you said there very succinctly and very beautifully. And it is, We can't parent our children with intention and care while abandoning ourselves for the cause. Yeah. I mean, it's like we know it, but we keep doing it over and over again. And I think, which is that we just keep sacrificing in the name of people we love most. And I know dads do this too. I see it in my husband. I see him running himself to the ground, working so hard for our family and me being like, hey, buddy, like you you're grumpy, you know, you have to do something, you know, and that's, I think that's what so many of us do is that we really pour our hearts and souls into the ones we love. And we end up really creating disconnection and distance and hurt in those relationships because we're so depleted when we show up in them. And it's a messaging that at face value, we can understand. Or even when I say it, people might be like, that's true. But I do want to acknowledge it's sort of like swimming against the current. So to do this differently is going to take a bit of effort. It's going against some of the ways that we've been taught or raised or um, how family or being a good mom or a good dad or a good parent's been presented to us. It's going to be a little bit tricky and uncomfortable at first, but it's work worth doing Mm -hmm. because your relationships will be better for it. Well, and I think it ties into the third and the final quote that I'll ask you about right now while we're live. And it is, if only we focused on the good instead of the ways that we fall short. Yeah. First, first talk about why do we focus on that list first of all the ways today we fell short and then talk to me about the benefit of pursuing the good. Yeah, I think it's just hard wiring as humans. It's almost like anytime in life you experience something really amazing, it's like it's such a short-lived burst of happiness. And then you experience something painful and it's like it lives inside of you forever. We are sort of wired to remember the bad and the hard and the difficult so much better than the good and to see and to seek those things out. And part of it is that it's protective. It's a protective mechanism because if we can avoid the hard things and the painful things, then we can hopefully have more of the good. 
good, but it backfires. It definitely backfires sometimes in our lives. This is actually one of my favorite chapters. It's a chapter on trust where I talk about how we see ourselves and our self-concept. I just described this idea of how we create a trust picture. This actually comes out of my dad's work, but it's it also comes from attachment theory, mental representation, there's long, deep roots in this concept. But it's the idea that we create a picture of ourselves in our mind that we regularly interact with. I describe it as, as a caricature. We sketch it of ourselves and it's based on a little bit of what we actually know about ourselves. So some fact, but it's mostly based on our opinion or judgment about what we know. So if you can imagine caricatures, we focus in and over-accentuate certain qualities. And so we do this in, as we sketch a picture of ourselves in our mind. And as moms, what we tend to do is we tend to accentuate the worst things about ourselves. So maybe in the morning with our kids, as we're getting ready for school, we kind of have a like a short, irritated response. And suddenly our picture shifts to this grumpy, like snarling animal of a mother in our mind of like foam coming out of our mouth. And we're like gritting our teeth and our, my mom's jaw would always flex when she's angry. So that's part of my picture is like this flexing jaw of like fear and torment, you know, and all of these, we, we really focus in on all of the ways that we're not doing a good job. And this trickles into deeper things like oh, I'm really messed up my kids this morning. Oh no, I sent them to school um, feeling like their mom doesn't love them. Or we, so we go deep with this stuff. And this leads to uh, a lot of negative self-talk and judgment, energy drains, and it makes us actually more likely to kind of have missteps along the way or be dysregulated along the way. And so the whole point of that chapter really is that the way that we see ourselves really matters. And we have the power a lot of my book is about our sense of agency and how we show up in our relationships. So we have the power to control how we sketch this picture. And so an in the moment in the intervention is to shift away from that snarling picture you've created in your mind and to focus on all of the ways you really are showing up in powerful and beautiful ways for your kids. Focus on the good. Focus on the beautiful and the blessings. And when you do that, things really shift in meaningful ways. You've been doing this work since you were seven years old, seven years old, holding your dad's briefcase. So you, you've had a little bit of a head start on the rest of us, but now you're practicing the work. So it's not a fake briefcase. It's a real purse. It's a real diaper. It's a real baseball practice this afternoon. Like it's, yes. it's, it's life. What are, what are a couple of things you do as we get ready to wrap up our conversation that you're like, John, listen, man, as a mom, as a spouse, as a parent, th these are probably the best things I do every day. And I'm so glad we collectively as a family do. So help, help our families out there grab a couple specific mm. takeaways from this conversation. Oof, that's a good question. Something that I do every day when I'm like with the kids for a full day is that I check in with what I need. So I'll make this very clear. We already do this for our kids. An example of this is recently the kids were like at each other's throats. They're picking fights with each other a lot. And I was like, I can't. I can't handle this anymore. I was like, I hate you my, guys. Ah, like, stop it. But what I did was what we do as parents all the time is I thought, okay, what's going on with the kids? I know them really well. Oh, they haven't had any social time. And I thought about what they needed. They need social time. And then I did what I had to do to set up a play date all day at the beach. So I checked in on my kids. I know my kids well. And I thought about what they need. And then I met the need. 
I know this is a big picture thing, but I did the same for me. And I do this every single day, which is I said, okay, I'm about to give the whole day to the kids. I know that when I give a whole day to the kids and I get to the end of the day and I say something like, hey, make sure you clear your dishes and they give me any side eye or anything, I'm mad because I gave you everything today, right? We're like, how dare you? (laughs) I've done everything. So I didn't want to end my day like that. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to give the whole day to them. What do I need to do before I enter into that space? And I carved out a moment to do something for me that really moves the needle for me. That day it was lifting heavy weights because that helps to discharge a lot of energy. And so I encourage parents to think about how you think about your kids and you meet their needs. Now just do the same for you. It makes such a big difference. The second thing I do, I'm regularly thinking about how I can meet two needs at once. So often I can meet a need for our kids while I'm also getting my own needs met. And we just somehow miss this lesson sometimes in when we offer self-care advice to parents. We're like, oh, take the weekend away and then you'll feel better and come back and throw yourself into it again. You know, it's like, that's not sustainable, but there's lots of opportunities to actually meet needs simultaneously. So um, I do a, a homeschool hybrid part of a shift we've made and we're very blessed because we live close to the beach, but um, we used to go right into homeschool work and it's a mess. They were not into it. And so, and I would be not into it. I would be grumpy and frustrated, do your work. And so we started the days outside at the beach, a quick trip, and it meets my need for some quiet, (laughs) some feet in the sand and meets their need to run around, get some energy out before we do our work together. And so there's lots of opportunities for two needs met at the same time. So try, try to keep an eye out for those. When people finish hearing you speak on a podcast, mm-hmm. finish reading your book, finish a, a session with you at a, at a presentation somewhere and they, they leave change with one key concept. And I know you'll say, well, I want them to choose the one that works best for them. But if you could lay <laughs> it in like front this. of them and say, please grab this one thing. So this will be our final question before we shift into the Live Inspired 7. What's the one thing that you hope our parents and our caregivers and our children and our aunties and uncles and dog walkers and everybody else listening to our conversation today will grab as they get ready to go back into life? I want... Mm-hmm. These are the hardest questions for me. Like ask me a very deep involved one, but these ones are the hardest. Favorite color. Yeah. (laughs) That's hard for me too. It's my indecisiveness. I, I want parents to know that they have a lot of power to shift their relationships by just doing things themselves. I, I really feel like we live in a disempowered world in many ways. And I want people to know that if you're not happy with what your relationships look like, you have an opportunity to make some changes that can lead to massive Mm. transformation in your relationships. By taking advantage of one thing I talked about today, you'll start to shift the relationship. Okay. I feel like I have to give one really practical thing. Can I just give one really practical thing? I talked earlier about how people often don't know what they need. And so one really practical way whether you're a mom, a dad, a parent, a caregiver, anything, to figure out what you need, if you can't come to terms with that, is to think about what you complain about the most. Our complaints are our windows to our unmet needs. I call it the grumble. I I grumble around the house when I'm kind of in a bad spot. If you do that or you have your sort of tell, that's when you're irritated, pause for a minute, grab a piece of paper, and write down all the things you're grumbling about. These are the needs that you need to start addressing first and foremost. These are some of the things that will move the needle for you. 
And that can be really an impactful way to start. Wait, great way to wrap up our conversation. <laughs> so th thank you for reminding us that we have agency, mm -hmm. which is underrated and overlooked and underappreciated and so desperately needed. You have agency to change your life. Don't wait for the next election. Don't hope that person mm -hmm. takes care of you differently. Don't wait for the next relationship or for your children to finally leave the house or come back into your house. You have agency to decide how you want to show up today mm -hmm. and the lives you want to change through the way you show up. So I, I just think that's a beautiful reminder. We have seven questions, Morgan, that we ask every one of our podcast guests on this Live Inspired channel. So I'll be asking you as we uh, get ready to high five and then start the finish <laughs> line together. So what's been, and I know you read a lot, so this one's hard, but what's been the most influential book you've ever read? Ooh, okay. This is just for now. Cause I've read a lot of really good books. I read this book called the boy crisis a while ago. It's a very big dense book, but this book was really powerful in helping me gain a well-rounded perspective of my husband and my son mm -hmm. and the way that masculinity is talked about in today's world and, and school systems and presented and understanding things like something I took from it. Um, it talked about the power of like rough housing yeah. for boys and for dads. And I feel like sometimes some of these qualities, and I see it in my community on social media and other places that these qualities are sort of criticized. <laughs> Don't rile the kids up before bed and like things like that. And it, this book did such a good job of going through the research on some of these things that provided a really cool perspective on how dads a lot of times show up differently, but man, in really important ways for our kids. There are so few societal examples of masculinity, true mm. masculinity, mm -hmm. of truly a loving father. And how awesome that is to have at the dinner table and in the bedroom and outside of the basketball court. And uh, so I'm so glad that you read that book and that you lift that up in your son and in your husband because it's needed. It is. It's so needed. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up in Ohio that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today as a woman living in California? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I feel like I'm still very similar to that girl. And so it's hard for me to think about what I did better than that I do now. Cause I remember like in my bedroom hours and hours alone, like teaching to my fake classroom and at my chalkboard. And I feel like that's what I brings me the most love and just like happiness now is teaching about these things. And so I feel like I'm very much the same <laughs> as that girl growing up. I think I could probably lean more into play a little bit. It's weird how we lose that as we get older. Um, even when we have kids, we're like, ah, plays an inconvenient thing in my day, you know? And I think that there's so much benefit to that. So if I could harness some of that in her, I think that would be a good thing. Me too. That's awesome. If your home caught fire and all <laughs> living things are out, don't worry, all living things are out, but you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, one mm -hmm. thing, what would you come racing back outside with? I have a stuffed animal named Calvin. I actually gave him to our daughter. But when I was two years old, I was run over by a lawnmower. So that's an Ohio thing that you don't really see in California. And he was a gift that I received during that time. And he has been like, he went to college with me. He's a big part of our, our life still. And so I, I'd probably grab him. Calvin, come on out, baby. You're come on, up. baby. <laughs> House is burning. The laptop just got burned. Pictures are done. But Screw Calvin's my life's work. <laughs> Get in the stuffy. <laughs>
if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. These are like impossible questions for me. I feel like right now it would probably be my dad. And I realize this is ridiculous because he lives three blocks away from me, but I have so many, just my most favorite memories with my dad are slow. He's a slow talker. I get a little bit of that from him, but he's a slow conversationalist, lots of detail. And I just don't have that much time for it right now. I feel like a lot of our conversations, I'm like, okay, dad, okay, okay. Okay. I've had some moments of this and I'm trying to be really intentional about finding more of them, but to sit on a bench, chat it up with my dad about wherever the conversation takes us. I think that would be just so lovely right now. What's the best advice you've ever received? I don't know who gave me this advice, but something that I try to live by is to give generous interpretations of people as much as possible. Um, especially in marriage, especially with my children. I think that we finish the story a lot of times with the worst ending. So I try to give people really nice endings as I finish their stories and then check the details later. So good. What would you tell your 20 year old self? So if you could go back in time a little bit and whisper some wisdom your way at age 20, what would you say? Give people less chances, which kind of contradicts my last (laughs) advice. But I think um, my dad and his singles singles information, he always says, good-hearted people project their goodness onto others. And this is a wonderful thing, but it can get you in trouble. And I think that in dating relationships, um, there were times that I gave too many chances. And so I think looking back, luckily there's not no permanent damage, but looking back, I think there's some people I wasted too much time with. And this is maybe a conversation with him. I think learning how to use discernment, but learning also how to end relationships is a really important skill that I I could have gotten better at faster. Mm. Dr. Morgan Cutlip, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? I think it would say something like, she loved fiercely and fully and showed up in the world authentically. Something along those lines. Love fiercely and fully and showed up in the world authentically. That's what the author of Love Your Kids Without Losing Yourself had to say while she was with us, not only on this podcast, but on her journey through life. Uh, Morgan, I want to thank you for the work and the words and the impact that you've made in our channel. Thank you for having me. This is such a beautiful conversation. I really appreciate being able to chat with you. My friends, that is Dr. Morgan Cutlip. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. Well, my friends, I shared at the very top of the show, whether you are a parent or a caregiver or love someone who is, that this conversation with Dr. Morgan Cutlip is for you. And I hate to be the one who's about to say this next phrase, but here it comes. I told you so. I told you this episode was for you. I shared a lot of Morgan's quotes in the show notes on our website. So I encourage you to check that out by clicking on johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. But if you're looking for one that jumped out at me, it might be this one. Having needs does not make you needy. And don't we all need that reminder? We all have needs. That doesn't make you needy. As we race through life, 
when we don't express our needs over time, we become resentful, we become irritated, we become burned out and bitter toward the people that we ought to be loving the most. As always, I love hearing what you enjoyed most from today's episode and the dialogue among our community members that ensues. So if you want to be part of this conversation, head on over to the Live Inspire Together community by visiting me right now online. I'm always hanging out there at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash together. Come on over there. That's where we continue this conversation. My friends, if you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, you may want to check out my conversation with my friend. And this guy truly is my friend. We've had dinners together, laughs together, cries together. His name is Dr. Tim Jordan. He's a developmental and a behavioral pediatrician and an expert on navigating children through their normal development transformations so that they can emerge strong and happy and fulfilled. You can listen to Tim share his common sense approach that enables parents to be more confident and effective, reducing conflict and drama while remaining a strong influence in their children's lives throughout their adolescence and into adulthood. You can learn all about that by tuning in to Dr. Tim Jordan on the Live Inspired podcast, episode 330. And of course, we'll have a link to that in our community webpage at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Well, listen, I don't take your time or your attention for granted. So thank you for tuning into the Live Inspired podcast for this time. And until next time, my name is John O'Leary reminding you that the foundation is firm. The headwind might be real, but the best is yet to come. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com.